I remember going, we, we got um, done with a meeting and we sit in the car with a franchise owner. We both look at each other and we both go, F this, man. Mm-hmm. We're going to do it on our own. Mm-hmm. Because my thought was, if I sign up to be a franchisee in a system that doesn't have it figured out yet, um, I'm going to be really disappointed. I'm going to be trapped. I'm going to have yeah. the same kind of golden handcuffs I felt yeah. like I had at, at Goosehead. Mm-hmm. So I decided to do it on my own. I'm here sitting with Ben Davis, a man of many talents and endeavors, but uh, what I most know you for and reached out for was you are the founder of Gents Place. The, yes. The, the, what would you call it? Is it a men's hair salon or what? You probably have a different say name for it. a country club meets speakeasy meets barbershop. Okay. So yeah. I think people mostly know what those three things mm-hmm. are, and so you just blend those together and that's what the gents place is. Well, yeah, and I want to dig into that with you for a moment, you know, but I didn't want to stop you. We were getting to know you a little bit mm-hmm. about your backstory. And I think it's uh, I think we're gonna have a great conversation because I know you, like I, I was alluding to, you do quite a few things, you have some nonprofits that you participate with, had an interesting, I think, entry into the insurance world mm-hmm. uh, at the beginning of your career. But today we'd be talking about your story. And so for the folks that are listening, not really any insurance talk, mm-hmm. um, that's okay. Uh, but I just want to warn you in case you were coming here for some insurance nuggets. We're not going to dig into it today, but Ben, why don't you kind of continue? You were talking about your college uh, career and your life and all those things. I'd love to hear a little more of your story. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, everything I've done in business, I've, I have done with my wife since we've been together since we were 16. So, um, but yeah, I started the gents place when I was 25 and, uh, and it was 2008 and we ended up getting an SBA loan two weeks before Lehman brothers collapsed. Oh, and so my wife and I and small family at that time relocated to Frisco, Texas, moved into an apartment right next door to the gents place. So I could walk to, to work every day because okay. I was worried that it wasn't going to work. Yeah, I need to yeah. be there every day. Case I, I don't, can't afford my car anymore. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So she's been a trooper throughout uh, my whole entrepreneurial experience. But yeah, we opened our first business in 08 and mm-hmm. um, it was just a wild ride. My banker called me uh, right after we got our SBA loan, like two weeks after. And he said, Lehman Brothers collapsed. He's like, Ben, Lehman Brothers collapsed. And I'm like, okay, what's Lehman Brothers? Yeah, what does that you know, mean? I'm trying to build a barbershop. <laughs> you know, I, don't, I have no idea what you're trying It's like, it's the largest bankruptcy in the history of the United States. He's like, hurry up and start spending money before we take it back from you. Okay. And I got an approval you know, for this SBA loan. I'm going, you can do that? He's like, the whole world's falling apart, man. And so I never knew. I've been dealing with contractors now for 15 years. I never knew how great it was for a contractor to receive a call where it's like, I know we don't owe you any money, but can I wire you $50,000 today? (laughs) At Granite Peak Analytics, our passion is to educate payers and advisors to make informed PBM choices through independent data and unmatched expertise. Our unique ability to effectively eliminate prescription overspend for both plans and patients ensures our advisor clients win and retain business with pharmacy levers. Our role regularly evolves and adapts to meet the unique needs of each client in the rapidly changing pharmaceutical market. We are self-funded experts with a hyper niche on the overly complex world of pharmacy. Our objective approach and full transparency of consulting fees delivers rare financial alignment with our customers. Check out what our clients have to say at granitepeakrx.com. Well, is that also a little bit nerve wracking, you know, thinking, is that contractor going to fulfill like their duties to me? Not at the time. Cause okay. I'm 25 years yeah. old. I'm so naive. I would never do that today. Yeah, like, like, do just, you only want 50 or can I send you a hundred? Yeah, right? like, so, how I much mean, do you want? Right. It was the fastest turnaround I've ever had from a contractor. Absolutely, sir. We will send you an invoice and we will take your money. That's um, amazing, man. But I needed to trigger the loan so that I could, you know, th- they wouldn't take the money back from me. That's fine. Well, well, funny, I say probably in hindsight, probably not so funny as you're experiencing mm-hmm. that. Um, if you don't mind, could we go backwards to the Goosehead? Uh, oh, goosehead? for sure. Because I want to I want to know about that experience yeah. first, and then then that we'll move into the gents place. And I also want to hear a little bit about the, the concept, like how you came up with it. But you, uh, you and I were talking beforehand as we're preparing, you know, Lee Lewis, who's yeah. been a past guest. Lee Lewis mentioned being one of the uh, earlier or newer mm-hmm. employees to Goosehead as it was being built. So you were there. Yeah. With him as yeah, well, right? Yeah, Lee and I were the first five employees there at uh, at Goosehead, which was 
Texas Wasatch Insurance, then turned TWG Insurance, then turned Goosehead Insurance. Okay. So that's how you know someone's been at Goosehead a long time is if they were back in the TWG T days. OG TWG, yeah. Yeah, yeah. if I could even say that. Yeah, uh, exactly. But so Goosehead, I think, I don't know much about it, but I believe it's kind of personal lines, home, auto, is that uh, yeah, correct? Yeah, okay. so personal lines, property and casualty, mostly home and auto, a little bit of small commercial, zero health insurance. Zero health, yeah. Zero life insurance. Um, so I know nothing about health insurance. You've taught me a no lot tests. already. Yeah, no tests. Really. Um, but yeah, it was my entry into the insurance business and it was a really unique model and it still is today. But um, at the time it was disrupting the brick and mortar, um, kind of state farm, mm -hmm. all state farmers, all the big boys had a brick and mortar presence in a strip center somewhere. And Goosehead showed up and said, I think we can do the same thing for people remotely. So over the phone. So yeah. it's 100% phone based oh, wow. um, when we first started. And um, it was helping people with their home and auto insurance. Lee and I expanded out into the real estate mortgage community. Mm. And that's what really uh, was the genesis of what built the business long term, which was a you know self-generated uh, model, revenue okay. model. So at the time we were buying leads online and selling policies over the phone. Lee and I started to go out and network and tapped into the mortgage broker world. And you think about this, it's 2005 to 2008, mm -hmm. the mortgage industry is boom. Yeah. And so mortgage brokers needed insurance binders fast and they needed insurance policies. They're closing 10 loans a day. And so Lee and I stepped into that and were able to create Amazing. a system to get uh, insurance to their clients. Well, how did you get connected with Goosehead in the first place then? Because you probably didn't go, hey, I'm going to go sell some insurance out of college. Right? Yeah. Or, di or did you? No, okay. no. Okay. So I was the guy that was, uh, I started two businesses in college and I'm like, I am not working for anybody, yeah. you know, but I went to the Macomb school at UT and paid some good money for that and a great school. And so everyone's like, hey, you should really like interview with companies, you know, <laughs> I'm like, okay, that's a good idea. <laughs> so I remember I interviewed with this consulting firm, management consulting firm. I won't mention their name. Um, although I want to, but I'm not going to okay, okay. because I interviewed with them and they're like, where would you like to be five years from now? And without hesitation, like starting my own business. Yeah. Where would you like to be two years from now? Starting my own <laughs> business. Yeah. And so they gave me a case, you know, in the management um, consulting interviews, they gave me a case. I aced the case. This guy calls me back. He's like, we're not going to give you a job. Would you like some feedback? I go, sure. He goes, man, you aced the case. You have like perfect GPA. But you told us you have no interest whatsoever in being an <laughs> yeah. employee here. <laughs> yeah. Just a word of advice. If you do want to be employed by somebody else in the future, either don't say that or maybe you should go start your own business, right? Like, I'm so naive yeah. and so, I guess, honest. Like, okay. this is what I wanted. That's funny. Yeah. So I interviewed with Mark Jones at, at Goosehead. So he and his wife were interviewing at the Macomb School, very small company, asked the same questions. Hey, where do you want to be a few years from now? I'm like, I really want to start my own company. He goes, great. <laughs> do you want to sell insurance for the rest of your life? He's like, I don't think so. Not particularly. I've never thought about it. Yeah. I don't even know what's involved. He yeah. goes, okay, great. You want to build a business? I go, yes. He goes, come build a business with me. Hmm. And in five years, go out and do your own thing. I want to take the company public. I want to grow this. And he was, a, he was a founding partner of Bain Consulting Office here in Dallas. He was the global head of recruiting at Bain. Okay. Really smart guy, Harvard MBA. Join me. Let me give you your honorary Harvard MBA. Let me teach you. Mm -hmm. And then you can go do whatever you want the rest of your life. And I go, sold. So exactly. I remember, and Mark, it's funny because Mark's a big guy. I remember interviewing with him, walking out through the atrium in McCombs and calling my dad. And I'm standing there looking out the window. And I'm like, Dad, I just had this amazing interview. And the guy was like, cool with me starting my own business. And Mark's this big dude. And I look over, and Mark is running at me. <laughs> I'm like, Dad, the guy that just interviewed me is running at me. I think I need to go. And so I hung up. And he's like, come back in here. And uh, I was like, okay. And he gave me an offer on the spot. He goes, look, we, we want you. Wow. We're going to give you an offer. Yeah, he didn't want you to wait. Like, he didn't want to lose you, probably. Okay, mm -hmm. cool. So you get this offer, and you go, oh, I guess I'm employed now, right? Yeah. yeah okay. <laughs> so what, what was the start? What did the origins of that, that, that job look like for you? Pareto Health is the manager of the largest employee benefits group captive in the United States. And it's also now the main sponsor of the Self-Funded with Spencer podcast. I chose to partner with Pareto Health for three main reasons. Number one their dedication to improving the world of health benefits. Number two, their mission to reduce volatility and to make self-funding simple for mid-sized employers. And number three, the strength and scale of their program. 
With over 2,300 member groups and more than $1 billion of stop-loss premium under management, Pareto Health is the most robust solution of its kind in the country, period. Stay tuned for more information because I'm sure I'll be featuring them on an episode of the podcast very soon. Visit Pareto Health at ParetoHealth.com or follow them on LinkedIn to stay up to date on the latest news and developments. It was startup. I mean, it was like there are no systems, so you got to create them. Um, one of the things was there's no customer service department. So it was 100% salespeople. Mm. So like we're selling policies and then we get to the point where someone wants to call in and change a car on an auto policy. So I'm picking up the phone, changing a car on the auto policy. So I went back to Mark. I go, we got to like hire people to yeah. answer that phone call. Yeah. And I think at first we're kind of resistant to it. We didn't have any money. We're trying We're sell, 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 sell. We'll just answer the phone. You can do both. And so we did do both for a while to the point where we go, we got to, actually create a client service department. Mm -hmm. So I created that and ran 100% of the client service operations um, early on at Goosehead. Wow. And so over the course of how many years was it until the, uh, did you exit during the IPO or no, pre-IPO? So, um, I, I, uh, before the IPO, I was there for four years. And in those four years, I recruited every single one of my best friends from childhood, from San Antonio. Did they all say yes to you? Um, yeah, so oh, they all cool. came in. Initially one said no, and then he said yes, but I recruited everybody in and um, we're running the company and then I left. And so they're like, dude, where are you going? Uh, but I had a plan, you know, from the beginning, mm -hmm. like I told Mark. And I didn't see an IPO happening in five years. I was four years in. Um, but all my buddies stayed, and they all built the company. I even went back and officed at Goosehead in 2011 and 12 okay. while I was starting the Gents Place um, a couple of years in. And so I got to be part of that whole experience cool. with them starting franchising. Um, and I even did some competitor calls for him. I moonlighted and just kind of helped him out. But, um, but yeah, the business fundamentally changed from a corporate model to franchise. Mm -hmm. And their entire business prop, uh, value proposition is service. They do service for the guys in the brick and mortar locations okay. so that they can go out and sell. Cool. Very cool. Well, it's mm -hmm. obviously been a very successful it model. Has. But so when she left, when did this notion of I want to start this this thing called a gents place? Mm -hmm. so have you always been interested in in that type of environment or did you see there was a void in the marketplace that you wanted to fill? What what, what did that look yeah, like to you? Yeah, I, I probably just looking back when I was a, you know, a teenager, like, you know, I wanted to have the best hair and mm -hmm. the best clothes and the best looking and all that. So if I trace back, I probably had an affinity to looking good and mm -hmm. feeling good. No experience in the hair industry. I've never cut hair in my life. And so I think I was probably drawn to the industry because okay. just from a personal um, standpoint. But um, I thought just buying a franchise would be the easiest thing. So I went and shopped franchises in the men's grooming space. Okay. I'm 25 years old, just buy into something that's already working, be easy. Well, I went in and uh, was a customer at all these different places, and I was really let down. It's like, man, this isn't exactly how I would do it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, this person wasn't really trained very well. I'd want a few more selections at the bar. I'd probably change that piece of furniture. I don't really like that membership model. And so uh, after interviewing with a few franchisors, um, my buddy who was going to start the company with me and ended up staying at Goosehead and having a successful career there, I remember going. we, we got um, – done with a meeting and we sit in the car with a franchisor and we both look at each other and we both go, F this man, mm -hmm. we're going to do it on our own. Mm -hmm. Because my thought was if I sign up to be a franchisee in a system that doesn't have it figured out yet, um, I'm going to be really disappointed. I'm going to be trapped. I'm going to have yeah. the same kind of golden handcuffs I felt yeah. like I had it at Goosehead. Mm -hmm. So I decided to do it on my own. Well, so how long from the point of, aha, I think I can do this better and I'm going to do it this way to the point of, hey, let's go get that SBA loan and let's put this in motion. Super fast. Super fast. Yeah, it was super you fast. You sound like you don't really like to do no. things slowly <laughs> and methodically. Well, I don't. Like you, got, you have the idea and you go. So, okay, so when you pitched this to the bank out of curiosity, what were some of the reactions you were getting? From yeah, that? so um, gosh, I... <laughs> I don't even remember if I interviewed with more than one bank because I was insuring a business and I'll give them a shout out here is taco joint. Okay. Ever seen a taco joint. Yeah. So I was insuring ta the first taco joint, this guy, Corey, and he was young. I'm like, Hey dude, how'd you, uh, how'd you like finance this business and everything? And he's like, Oh, I got this guy at, at my bank and he's great. And I go, can I have his number? Cause I started thinking about, I'm going to, I need to open you know a business. And so it was just timed right where I looked really successful. I'd built this great business at Goosehead, key executive there. Um, and 
uh, I, I called him up and he's like, man, you got a great resume and everything. We are pumping out loans. Cause remember yeah. this is like, everybody's doing great. Yeah. Real estate is booming. You can buy 10 houses at a time. And, um, so he kind of coached me on how to present it to the bank, but yeah. I had a good profile. Okay. Um, and, um, I think the bank probably, even though they never asked me, they're probably like, he wouldn't leave that job to start a barbershop, you know, he probably wouldn't leave like right away. So I think they were, they're probably matching that up going, there's no way he'd leave a very successful job. And, um, I got the loan. I was like, I'm done. <laughs> jumped right <laughs> yeah, in. <laughs> that's amazing, man. So uh, over the course of that time, obviously you're pumping out checks proactively just to get the money out of your account because uh, mm -hmm. of those fears. But so then what was the build like? Like you obviously you got to go from everything to the layout, the design, the architecture, you know, all the suppliers, you, you name it. And you probably know, you obviously know way more than mm -hmm. I do, but I'm sure once you get the loan, that's obviously just the step one. And it was it like now, what do I do? Or did you already have folks uh, in your circle that were prepared? We hired people and we okay. hired people on a budget. Okay. And then we fired those people. <laughs> so, you know, if you look at the original Frisco location at the Gents Place, which is no longer. Where you, was that, by the way? That was I in Lebanon and the Tollway. Oh, yeah. No, exactly where that Shops is. Shops okay. at Starwood. Yeah. yeah. Um, you would walk into the shampoo room and we had these little kick out footrests on the shampoo chairs. Uh, it was not built properly. The room was too small. So you actually had to hop over people to get to your shampoo chair. Mm. It was because the designer we hired um, mapped everything out. And then we start building it, seeing the walls go up. And we go, uh, this looks too small. Mm -hmm. No, 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 it'll be fine. We're like, no, it's too small. And we're starting to find all these issues. So we had to fire the designer. My wife came in. She has kind of a fashion background, very creative person okay. and kind of finished it the rest of the way. But yeah, every known problem to man, you know, we probably well, what's the adage you can do cheap, fast and good, but you can't do all three. Yeah, right? So like exactly. if you go cheap, obviously it may not be so good, but that, I mean, that's your, that's your first sight, right? Like mm -hmm. the, the idea as a, a burgeoning entrepreneur is you're not going to have it perfect the first time around. So other than maybe some of the logistical challenges and layout challenges, what else did you kind of uncover as it became a business? Man, just the whole operations of the business, the business model. So I was looking at what else existed in the market, how they priced their services, how they structured it. And I did something similar. Okay. But then I found out, I don't think this is going to work. So for example, this model where you pay one price and you can come in an unlimited number of times. Well, that's what I did early on because that's what everybody else did. And then I go, well, that doesn't make sense because I've got this guy coming in twice a week mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. taking up my staff's time and I'm probably not making money. And so the business grew like crazy, revenue mm -hmm. and profit decreased. Mm. And so I had to make all of these tweaks in the, in the business model, which I'm glad, you know, when I, when I go back in time to say, uh, to think about, should I join an existing franchise or should I start my own? This is part of my decision-making calculus was I could pay a franchise fee and a certain percentage of sales forever in perpetuity and mm -hmm. not be able to change it. Mm -hmm. Or I could start my own thing, even if I have no idea what I'm doing, I can figure it out and I can at least iterate. Yeah. And so the, the entire business model really changed. Pricing changed, the membership uh, model changed, the facility changed. I renovated that place probably a half dozen times. No kidding. Okay. Um, I mean, I was constantly changing stuff based on, on guest feedback. So it was, it was a startup. And I mean, as anyone you talk to that has done a startup, you ask is the business today the same as when it was when you started? And I've never met anyone that says, yes, it's, yeah, it's exactly, exactly as yeah, I planned yeah. in my business plan. Well, so let's talk about current state because obviously I, I, I know of the Gents Place. I've, I've utilized those facilities and they're great a couple times, or probably a half dozen times or mm -hmm. so. But I told you I was somewhat, quote unquote, married to yeah. Maya, my barber for about eight years and was traveling far too uh, much distance mm -hmm. just to get a haircut. But, you know, that's how it is, right? And this maybe you can speak to a little of the psychology of, hey, men that want a certain haircut that's sort of guaranteed to be good, right? You're willing to pay a little bit more for that. So did you know that going in that I was going to appeal to maybe a little bit more of a prestige play and folks that didn't just want to walk into a sport clips for 10 bucks and then go out? Presuming that was your intent, right? I built it for me and yeah. people like me, which was I managed my entire day by a calendar. You know, a haircut was just a block of time Same that way. I needed to schedule. Mm -hmm. I needed to start on time. I needed to end on time. I needed to be good. I need to look good. Mm -hmm. And then I'm out. And so that was it for me is I couldn't walk into, I call them an XYZ clips joint because I didn't know if I was going to be seen right away or I'd have to wait an hour. Mm -hmm. I couldn't take that risk of potentially waiting an hour. And so it had to be appointment based. 
It had to be good. It had to have amenities in there that would make me want to go back, make me look forward to, to coming in versus, mm-hmm. you know, it being a necessary evil. And so I just said, well, this is all the stuff that I would want in here and started talking to my buddies. Would that appeal to you? Oh, dude, if you could do that, I would want to go to that place. If you could do that, I would definitely go to that. I'd probably spend more time there than than uh, the, the haircut. Mm-hmm. And so that's really how I built it. It was just personal need and just very quick focus group check on, are you thinking the same thing that, that I'm thinking? Well, what I like about it too, and just, I, I know not everybody probably, uh, depending on where they're listening from, has a gents place in uh, their geographic area. But the vibe to me was really appealing because there's a, there's an air of masculinity, right? Mm-hmm. You're appealing to some masculinity. You know, it's dark, it's got, uh, it's oaky, it's got, you, you get some whiskey, right? Don't mm-hmm. you get a choice mm-hmm. if you want some yeah. whiskey? It's just, it was an opportunity, I felt like, for a man to feel like they're being pampered, but in an environment they were probably comfortable to do so. Not mm-hmm. a, a woman's salon, which has a different sensibility and a different aesthetic and a dis- different customer base. So for me, when I saw it pop on the radar 10 years ago or mm-hmm. so, it was like, oh, that's completely different than anything I, I have seen. And clearly you tapped into a niche that was untapped. And so where are you today, like location-wise, number of places across the country? Give me an idea Yeah, of your, yeah. Your so we've, we've awarded many more franchises than we have open. COVID kind of put a, a damper on some of, of our growth, yeah. but um, we're back franchising again. We have 11 locations open. So we're all over the major uh, cities in Texas. We're also in Las Vegas, Chicago, Bentonville, Arkansas, and Kansas City. Um, and we're looking to open more locations. I think we'll probably award five or so franchises by the end of the year okay. um, in Texas and, and elsewhere. Um, but, you know, I want to comment, too, on the business model has changed and it's constantly changing. So okay. outside looking in, you know, a lot of us look at us as a haircut place, a place where I can go and get, a, you know, a nice haircut and great service. What's happening, though, on the market is. And it's like, as I've personally gotten older, and we talked about mm-hmm. being being 40, and already, almost, beat you to it, an man. almost yeah. 40 guy and a 40 yeah. guy, yeah. Um, we have different needs. Like a lot of these gentlemen are, they're doing testosterone, they're doing peptide balance, they're doing Botox, they're doing this, they're doing that. So that didn't appeal to me when I was 25. Mm-hmm. But now I'm going, I've been thinking about that testosterone thing. I've been thinking about some of these, you know, anti-aging mm-hmm. products and services. So we're starting to dip our toe into what else can we do to serve these gents that have been with us for 14, 15 years? Because we do have a lot of OGs that have been with us from the beginning. And we've all seen each other age and all of our kids grow up. And uh, we have different needs. And so that's the exciting part of our industry and just where we are is I think we're going to add some services. We're going to pilot some things and see if they work. Man, well, I didn't know that, but I appreciate you telling me that because I, I feel the same way, right? It's like I did eclipse forty last October, mm-hmm. and you know, you, psychologically, I think the impact is worse than the actual physical yeah. toll. You just know you're forty now, but all of those things are relevant to me. What you just described are relevant to me at this age that were not relevant to me at twenty five. Mm-hmm. I would have never considered any of those things. So very, very cool that it's seeing the evolution of it. Um, I want to kind of move on in terms of what you do because I've, we've scratched the surface of the things that you have your involvement in. But I, I just want to say kudos to you and building something that's recognizable and very, very strong brand. Um, you do also some nonprofit work. And so we were talking before mm-hmm. the cameras were rolling about uh, one specific nonprofit that you serve. And I want you to hear you elaborate. Yeah. Yeah. That. So my wife and I co-founded a, a nonprofit called Operation Gentleman. And Operation Gentleman serves our veterans and our homeless veterans. So five years ago, we started collecting suits at all of the Gents Place locations, new and gently used suits. We collected those and we needed a place to to give the suits. And so we found an opportunity at Fort Hood, which is the largest military base in the country, believe it or not, it's right in our backyard in Killeen, Texas. And there was a um, operation there called the Warrior Transition Unit, which is now the Soldier Recovery Unit. And it is an organization on base, a physical building with services that rehabilitate people transitioning from military life to civilian life. Mm -hmm could be PTSD, it could be amputees, it could be a number of different challenges that they're experiencing that cause them to leave the military and go into civilian life. So we thought, and that would be awesome if we could give suits to these people that are transitioning um, into civilian life and need a job and need to interview and all of that stuff. So uh, we go down there the first year and we do a shopping experience. We bring, I don't know how many suits, a couple hundred suits, and they loved it. Okay. Um, a lot of these gentlemen, it was their very first time ever owning a sport coat or owning a suit. They have no idea what size they are. What do you mean a 38 regular? Right. Like, I right. have no idea what that means. 
So we were able to educate them and bring them through that shopping experience. It's grown substantially. So we had over 5,000 suits donated last year. Wow. Wow. Suits and business attire items. So shirts and uh, pants and socks and all that stuff. Um, so it's turned into quite a thing. Mm-hmm. And we're really excited about that. We also fund meals for homeless veterans. So we're over 35,000 meals that we've served to homeless veterans. So every annual membership at the Gents Place feeds a homeless veteran. Um, along with, um, if you come in for the first time, we feed a homeless veteran. Um, so we're really focused on the veterans in our community and making them feel good, making them feel welcome back into civilian life. My dad was in the Air Force. My grandfather was in the Air Force. Um, my brother's in the Navy. Uh, it, we take for granted how mm-hmm. normal things are mm-hmm. in, our, in our life. They are coming from a totally different world. You take a gentleman that entered the military at 18 years old, we connect with him at 40 years old mm-hmm. at the soldier recovery unit. He's been in the military his entire life, mm-hmm. his whole world. Like he only shops on base. He wears the same thing every day. He is serving all of us every day. Mm-hmm. Um, just to receive something is really strange to him. So I was telling you before, it's like, um, I'll just take one suit. We're like, no, we got like 5,000 of these. You're going to take three suits. He's like, I really just want one. You're going to take three. Yeah. Yeah, but someone else might want it. You're going to take yeah. three. Yeah. Thank you for your service. Yeah. And like, reluctantly take it. So they're just wired differently. Yeah. Well, that's, and I, what I really like about it is you are, you're offering something to them. It is a, a gift, right? It's, it's a thank you. I mean, however you want to position it, but it's like, here is the thing that we know you likely will need as you transition into mm-hmm. civilian life. I have a, a good friend in the military, I won't say what branch, but he's he's going through his He's completing his 20 years in about two years. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm talking to him here and there about, you know, transitioning to civilian mm-hmm. life and what he wants to do. And But for his entire adult life, like you described, he's been in the military and seen combat and, and suffers from uh, some kind of PTSD-related yeah. uh issues. So it's like just thinking about that transition from a psychological standpoint for them, like adapting mm-hmm. to the world that we've operated in while they were out there serving us. Yeah. I mean, it's really cool that you guys give just back. wearing civilian yeah, clothes like a, that look yeah. like, you know, showing up for an interview and wearing a sport coat, yeah. like that helps them out. That helps them kind of uh, integrate into normal society. And I'm sure it's evolved and grown to be something even bigger than you ever thought it oh, would yeah. be. So you you would do actually collect at the Gents Place, though, yes, right? Yes, we do. Yeah. Okay, so yeah. I think you said in September. The whole month year. of September we collect, yeah. and then we sort everything out through the month of October, and then right before Veterans Day is when we do our big shopping experience down at Fort cool. Hood. So uh, how do you kind of announce this? Uh, you know, I, I told you I'll probably want to post about it, and yeah. I will be bringing you some stuff this year now, now that I know that's an option. How do you promote it uh, beforehand and things like that? Yeah, I mean, we've got a big email list. Um, I mean, you'll see signage in all of the locations on the windows, on the mirrors at every station. Um, anyone that has been coming into the Gents Place for more than a year, they know it's coming. Like, they look forward to it. They save their suits. And so I think that's why it's gotten, it's compounded. Yeah. Is uh, now it's like they are, we've got a bunch of pent-up demand. You have guys dropping suits off on August 31st. You You're know, like, hey, going, I know it's starting yeah. tomorrow, but can I, you know, yeah. my appointment was today. That's cool, man. Yeah. Well, when I, I've donated jacket here and there, or shirts, you know, maybe that I've outgrown or whatever, and you, you like the idea of donating them regardless of where it goes, but knowing that this, this will go to a specific persona and for a specific reason, I think has an added layer of appeal because if you, let's say you donate a nice suit that you paid a lot of money for and it just doesn't fit anymore or whatever the case may be, mm-hmm. you kind of want to go, hey, I want to make sure that somebody else now gets the real benefit of this and mm-hmm. it doesn't just end up on a rack somewhere where who knows if it's ever uh, gets picked yeah. up. Yeah, I'll tell you one new yeah. thing that yeah. we did too, Please, yeah. two years ago, which is incredible. We had our members start to write um, quotes, write advice to these veterans oh, that are transitioning. Man. And so we collected all these in books. And last year we created one big book. First year we did separate books at all the locations. We created one big book last year, mm-hmm. um, advice, business cards. Some guys are like, contact me, I hire veterans. Mm. Others were just quotes or just life advice like, hey, as you transition into civilian life, I want to let you know you're appreciated. Mm -hmm. Like, we love you. Like, thank you so much for your service. And these books were like, they were transformative. Yeah. So we had some of the guys that managed the the soldier recovery unit go, Hey man, I'm going to give this book to Mm. this one really special guy. Yeah. He needs it. Yeah. And I want to introduce you to him. And, um, and so, you know, we meet somebody and they're like, reading through and they're like almost crying yeah. of just going 
man, people actually appreciate yeah. what I do. And I actually have people that want to hire me. I have someone I can reach out to. Mm -hmm. It's really touching. So those books are like, they've become just as have special you thought about as the pu suits. publishing that? Like, I mean, would there be... Uh... Well, we let them keep the book. Okay. So it's kind of their prized possession is yeah, now cool. that book stays there at SRU. Okay. And as those people are going through rehab, they may be there days, weeks, mm -hmm. or months. It's like they may be doing rehab, you know, sitting in a hospital bed, but they can flip through this and go, oh, that's man, amazing. that's really cool. Oh, this guy's hiring in Dallas. I was thinking about moving to Dallas, yeah. right? Or I'm an IT guy, and this is an IT guy. I'm going to take that note down. That's so, um, cool. so that's become like just as special as the the suit that's being given. Yeah, I well, so I was actually thinking about this on the way in, and I was having um, coffee and breakfast downstairs at La Finca, one of my favorite places. Shout out to La Finca. Mm. Um, but I, I was wearing the jacket, having coffee. I noticed I got a head nod from one guy mm. in there, and then I, there was a, a lady that was sitting with one of her friends, and I know she looked at my jacket too, which it was it was kind of like, oh, when you wear something nice, mm. and I'm going somewhere with this, but mm. when you wear something nice, people respond to it, right? And I've always envisioned it as like, if you put on a nice jacket like you're wearing mm. today, it's almost like a level of respect to the world. Mm -hmm. You're putting out into the world, hey, I'm going to dress up today and I want to look good. And anybody that I interact with is, is maybe the beneficiary. And I'm saying, hey, I want to look good mm -hmm. for you, whether it's consciously or not. What you're giving to those soldiers is a similar opportunity for that feel, that mm -hmm. confidence. Even if they're uncomfortable in this new skin, in this new environment, hey, I look good. I mm -hmm. think I can do this, right? And so yeah. that, that's what I've always envisioned a jacket does for a man, just like a beautiful dress might do for a woman. Yes. It's something to let the world know that you know, you're here and you're confident and you believe Especially in yourself. Especially if you're yeah. in this state of like extreme uncertainty. You, know, you got to think about, okay, I've, I've been working in the military for 22 years. I have no idea how to interview. I don't know if I'm going to say the right thing. Do I ask questions? What do I wear? What like there's so many questions. So it's uncertainty mm -hmm. generally will breed a lack of confidence. So we know that they're coming in down here. And so, yes, to your point, like just looking, looking in the mirror and going, that's this looks good. And that's what we see when we suit people up. Yeah. You know, we say, how does that feel? And that you can see them go, yeah. man, yeah, this. What do you stand think? up a little straighter? Yeah, yeah. No, they kind of like. Do you think it's like? Do I, do I look too fat in this? I'm like, <laughs> no, man, you look good. He's like, okay. Yeah. You know, and so that's cool. it just immediately you can yeah. see him walk out of there. Go. I'm ready for that interview tomorrow. Man, that's awesome. Well, so I, I, that's not the only, uh, I think, uh, nonprofit endeavor that you in, have entered into. What What is the, U, is it USA Gloves is the name of the? Oh, that's, what? no, that's no. actually a for-profit. Oh, that is for, oh, for yeah. some reason I was mistaken. I apologize. No, but, but so, you know, one of the things I'm passionate about just on, not even on the side, but just uh, in general is um, United States manufacturing. Mm. is bringing back manufacturing to the U.S. Um, for healthcare specifically. And I think ultimately it will find its way through health insurance when we can manufacture products here. We can do them at just uh, as good a cost in many cases. Mm -hmm. um, we just need commitment levels from, um, from buyers, from hospitals uh, um, to purchase from U.S. manufacturers. So we stood up a nitrile exam glove company. People are usually like, what the heck is that? Uh, but it's a glove that you put on your hand if you're a doctor <laughs> or a nurse or a vet or a dentist. And so we stood up one of the first um, glove manufacturing operations in the history of the United States. Really? Yes. Okay. So we're one of very, 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 very few that are operating right now producing medical gloves and we're selling to hospital systems. And so I'm a principal in that company. Our, our location is down in, uh, in Stafford, Texas, right outside of Houston, west side of Houston. And so um, for your healthcare oriented audience and anyone that has influence over purchasing, procurement, supply chain is we need those people looking at U.S. manufactured yeah. products, um, buying U.S. manufactured products to help with uh, supply chain results. Well, is there a misconception that it can't be produced uh, at, at a comparable cost here? Yeah, I think some products are going to be higher priced early on because we don't have the scale of sure. China or Malaysia or wherever the goods are being produced. But we can get to that scale if we have support, right? So it's not taking 100% of every glove that you buy mm -hmm. and buying it from a U.S. factory. It's taking 10%. Take 10%, go beat down the other guys, you know, on price a little bit, and it'll all blend out the same yeah. um, that you're paying right now. But give the U.S. manufacturers a little slice of it. Let them scale their, their businesses. And then ultimately what you're going to find here is a very robust manufacturing state that competes mm -hmm. well with foreign sources that 
not if, but when another pandemic hits, that we have protection here. Mm -hmm. Because what happened overseas is, and I get it, and it's not a knock against China or any of these other countries. When you're manufacturing all the gloves in China and a pandemic hits and you need gloves, you're going to take from the yeah. factories that are producing yeah. there. It doesn't matter if they have a contract with Honeywell or 3M or Cardinal or Owens and Mine or Medline or wherever. You're going to go, hey, guys, I know we have a contract in place, but people are dying here. Mm -hmm. And we make these gloves here in our country, mm -hmm. so we're going to take we're going to take it. Well, we would do the same thing. Yep, absolutely. And so we just didn't have the opportunity to do the same thing because there was literally nothing being produced here. So when was that actually born out of the pandemic? Yes. Okay, because I was going to ask you, and then you've answered the question for me already, is as you get your hands in these different endeavors, I'm wondering, are these all kind of concepts that you've originated from, or is it your network of folks have maybe been because of your past success introducing you to perhaps uh, opportunities is it a, blend, a mixture of both of those yeah so it's okay. probably similar to the podcast that you have is you meet so many interesting people mm -hmm. from all walks of life and the gents place is really for me a stepping stone to learning about all the different ways people make money mm -hmm. all the different nonprofits they're in all the church pastors in town all the city council people mm -hmm. And getting a really good view of how the world works, because these are the guys that can afford to come into the gents place are ones that are probably influential. They have influence over millions of, of people's lives. They're running businesses, they're running nonprofits, they're running the church. And so I was able to get connections to a lot of different yeah. folks and then find an interest area and go, man, you know that U.S. manufacturing thing? that you're involved in. I really like that. I'd like to participate in that. Can't do it maybe full time, but I can add some value. And okay. I know people, right? You need an investor. I got a guy at yeah. Jen's place. Yeah. You need a higher COO. I got somebody. I can add some value here. And so I found over the last 14 years, which is what I really hope for is I want to build this barbershop, which is really, um, you know, the haircut was the vehicle to get people in. I'm mm -hmm. really building community mm -hmm. of like-minded gentlemen. Mm -hmm and building an influential community where we can all get value out of that relationship. And so over the 14 years, that's what I've gotten. I've been able to get involved in politics. I've been able to get involved in nonprofits. I've been able to get involved in healthcare and manufacturing. Mm -hmm. And then also, you know, obviously the gents place and even manufacturing our own products um, and cosmetics yeah. here in the U.S. And so, yeah, my, my resume looks a little funky. I'm kind of known as the barbershop guy. But then you start peeling it back going, dude, I had no idea you were involved in that. Or you actually know a lot about insurance. You, mm -hmm. knew, you know a lot about this. Um, so I love it as a serial entrepreneur. Yeah. I love that. Well, I was going to say, you remind me of, I've had, uh, you, you're uh, one of a number of entrepreneurs I've been fortunate enough to have on the, the couch. And it's, I've noticed that you don't, I, your perception on the outside of an entrepreneur is they do one thing and they do one thing really well. Mm -hmm. I've had quite a number of guests that were in trucking and then they got into fintech and then they got into insure tech and then, mm -hmm. uh, you know, maybe they're, oh, I'll, by the way, I own a couple of restaurants. You know, there's yeah. this, this is weird amalgamation of things that they're probably just interested in or they think are good opportunities. And I think what some of what you were speaking to before is the fact that now they have a network with access of people that have these ideas or have the ability to help uh, build those into mm -hmm. something uh, tangible. Um, so it's pretty, it's pretty interesting to just to look at your resume mm -hmm. and then hear you tell the story of how those dots actually connect. Mm -hmm. Can we talk about broad-based entrepreneurship for a moment, though? Because we've talked about your actual businesses. But where did this come from, this desire for you to be an entrepreneur? Because it sounds like you knew that in college you mm -hmm. didn't want to work for somebody. So yeah. how, how far back does it go? PlanSight is a complete game changer in the world of insurance brokering. As a broker, you know how time-consuming and error-prone the traditional RFP process can be. But what if I told you there's a better way? PlanSight is the only end-to-end -end RFP solution on the market made specifically for benefits agencies. It's like having a superpower that gets you an average of eight to 10 hours back per employer renewal per year. And the best part? PlanSight supports all carriers, all funding types, and all group sizes for over 20 different benefits. If you're ready to make your RFP process faster, more efficient, and more profitable, it's time to call PlanSight. Visit PlanSight.com now to book a free demo and discover the future of insurance renewals. Gosh, man, I have no idea where it came from. I could theorize that my parents were in the military. They had very traditional, like, nine-to-five type jobs. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe seeing them work in that environment pushed me in the other direction because, you know, you always go, well, I'm right, mom and dad isn't, you know, especially mm -hmm. during the teenage years. And so maybe I was kind of pushed in the other direction because I was always – I was not – 
I was always kind of fighting with my parents for my independence and, you know, okay. I want to do what I want to do. Um, so it could have been that. It could have just been I was born with being independent. Maybe there's mm -hmm. some sort of gene of not liking authority and want to do my own thing. Um, so I don't, I don't really know if I could point to a moment in time. I just knew early on that I was a leader and whether it was throwing parties in high school or, you know, or doing well on the math test or whatever, like I wanted to be the best. Mm, okay. Even my social circle, you know, I wanted to win the awards. I wanted to be the best. I was competitive. And so that helps when in being an entrepreneur. It also helps in being a, an executive. But it was wanting to be the best and then having, for whatever reason, a very high tolerance for risk. Okay. And um, I moved a lot as a kid because I was a military brat. Um, I always had to reinvent myself. I always had to, I was the new kid in class. Yep. I needed to fit in. So I needed to, to be able to change a lot. And I didn't have a, a, a choice on settling in and everything being the same. And mm. so everything was always different. I just had to live with it. And, um, and we just, you know, we, we moved around because my dad was chasing the, the promotion constantly. And, um, I think I just got used to an environment of change and risk and I could tolerate it. I can tolerate well, risk hearing more you tell than that, most It makes people. sense, right? The, the prowess you would have to have if you're constantly changing schools and go making new friends and fitting in, like you said, and navigating a new social circle and things like that, you're going to develop, one, probably a pretty thick skin, but two, the confidence to be able to just, oh, flip the switch, and now i got to go do it all over again. I can see how that would transfer to raising money for a business or mm -hmm. uh, you know, positioning for a loan or going out and doing sales when there is no service team behind you at Goosehead. You know, all mm -hmm. those things, that, that risk tolerance makes sense, but also the acumen to go out and successfully navigate, something that most people would be scared to do because it's so foreign and new. So that makes sense now hearing you tell you know, mm -hmm. some of the psychological components. But did you, is after kind of thinking, and you probably have the self-discovery that's happening over over a handful of years, you did seem to know though, I really don't want to work for somebody. Yeah, else, right? I figured that, figured yeah. that out early on. Yeah. I started a couple of small businesses in college and then- Anything kind of cool or fun or were they just like- We had a coffee uh, a coffee bar, like a mobile coffee bar. Okay. So we were working at the Austin Convention Center and taking around to different places and the coffee scene in Austin was great. You know, they, there was a local roaster there. And so we put a little money into that, made some money. And then a marketing company called the Local Focal Card. It was like okay. this discount card, you know, okay. where you could, we got a bunch of businesses signed up and you get a discount on there. Um, traded some stocks, you know, and I worked for this guy that was a brilliant stock trader. Um, I just, I think it was just this independence thing where I go, man, I really like doing my own mm. thing. I like manifesting my own reality. And that's why I believe at Goosehead, even though, man, the, the, the sky is the limit. And I convinced my friends to come over and we were growing. It was like, I, I have to do something on my own. I ha if I want to wake up at 930 in the morning, I'm going to wake up at 930, you know, but I work harder than anyone else. You can ask any of my team members, you know, at Jen's place or anywhere else. Like they're wondering, how does this guy get all of it done? Mm -hmm. Well, one, I don't play golf. I don't have a bunch of hobbies. I frankly, I've got some really deep friendships, but I don't have a ton of mm -hmm. social friends that I just hang out with. I don't watch football. I don't watch basketball. Yeah. I like to work. Mm. I like to add value. Mm -hmm. And for whatever reason, I've just had in my head, and I think you know Steve Jobs had this as well, is like, I have no clue how long I'm going to be on this earth. Mm -hmm. I could die in a car accident, you know, leaving here. And so I'm just, I've always been focused on, I've always thought this since I was little, like I just need to get as much done now as I possibly can, add value, serve people, because if my life is cut short, I want people to go, God, that guy, man, he worked hard. He did some stuff too. He did too. some yeah, things yeah, in a yeah. short period of time. Well, it's funny, and I won't draw parallels to your level of success, mm -hmm. success at all, but I have seen some parallels in the way, what you were just describing in my own life, right? It's I don't really ever watch TV shows. Mm -hmm. um, I've especially with little kids now. I couldn't tell you, you know, I here and there might check a soccer score just because I'm casually interested, but I don't watch anything. And I had a, I had somebody I was doing like a little podcast consulting for somebody, and they were like, "Man, how do you get all these things done?" I'm like, "Well, 
rather than go log on the internet for 10 minutes to kill some time, I'm hopping over and doing an edit on a post and, mm-hmm. and posting it for, you know, a clip from the podcast. Like you, you realize you can find all these pockets of time, which most, most people might consider downtime or they're just kind of scrolling and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. What could I do in 15 minutes that actually would be transformative? You'd have so much more time than you actually think. Yeah. And so I just think I've, I've seen that in my own life where it's come to fruition, where people on the outside might go, I don't even know how you do it. It's like, well, you just find a way to do it. Yeah. Uh, how much time were you on Instagram yeah. today? And they're like, uh, probably like two or three hours. And you go, yeah. Okay, well, well, what could you have done? Yeah. I mean, yeah. you could have studied something. You could have gone to work out. I mean, there's so many things that you can do. Mm-hmm. If you're just, I think, conscientious of how you're actually spending your time. Yeah. ClaimDoc is a medical claim auditing and member advocacy company. We provide fiduciary services to employer-sponsored benefit plans, allowing them to create an environment where we ensure that the benefit plans are being charged in a fair and reasonable basis. My business is basically people, and it become a real simple transition. We thought it was gonna be far more complex. I've saved, we'll say hundreds of thousands of dollars I could not say enough about ClaimDoc. I want to make a point, yeah, too, please, yeah. that because um, I'm really passionate about entrepreneurship, yeah. but I'm also extremely passionate about the team member, about the employee, mm-hmm. about the person that they like that nine to five job. They want to go in and clock in and clock out and do a good job and spend time playing softball mm-hmm. or being in gymnastics right. or spending time with their family or whatever. I don't want everyone to be an entrepreneur. Like I want everyone to be what they want to be. And so we learned through, my wife ran for office recently and we met so many people in the community in Dallas County. Good, hardworking people, um, faithful people, that they just they just wanna live the life mm-hmm. that they wanna live, which is I wanna coach every basketball team for my kids. I wanna be there to pick my, my son up every day from school. And I don't need to make a million dollars a year or a hundred thousand a year. I just want to make enough money yep. to spend time with my family and my aunt and my uncle and my grandma and everyone else. And that's what makes the world work. Mm. We need people that are out there that are like, I'm willing to lose everything. I'm willing to take the most extreme amount of risk mm-hmm. for the highest amount of reward. That reward could be financial. It could be a reward of having discretion with your time. But the only way that that person can be successful is if, there's a, a counter to that. There's someone that's like, I'm willing to come in nine to five and work really hard and not spend an hour more. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm willing to put in some extra hours. I'm willing to be your number two. I'm willing to work just as hard, but not fund it. Mm-hmm. Or I'm willing to work as hard and fund it and be a partner of yours. Right. Or I'm an investor. I did that already. Right. I'm just willing to put some money in and watch you make it happen or advise you. So there's like so many critical pieces of making it all work. I want to just mention like my passion for entrepreneurship is is probably equally as strong, maybe a little less strong than my passion for the team members. Because I look at my team members in awe going, man, you guys don't even own this business and you're treating it like your own. Now you're not working Saturdays and Sundays. One of my um, <laughs> longtime team members, she's like, just asked me this past week, do you work every Saturday and Sunday? I'm like, yeah. But I'm thinking, she's probably asking me, going, well, do I need to do that? Cause she's kind of my number two person. I'm like, no, you don't need to do that. Mm-hmm. I do that because I want to do it. Not because, and I've never asked her to do it. I never asked my team members to go outside of the boundaries of, of what we've agreed to. You know, and I didn't have that before. You know, like at Goosehead, it was a very, it was like boiler room. It was like, mm-hmm. you have a hobby? My hobby is work. put all the time, work 80 hours a week. And, um, you know, it worked for them. It made them financially successful. But I want my team members to commit to something and do it really well within the confines of that. And then go home and go spend time with your family and go on vacation. Start your own business. By all means, we've had a lot of, we've turned out a lot of entrepreneurs through the Gents Place, which is great. So I just, I wanted to make that point because I think I see all of these entrepreneurs driving the Lambo, do your own thing, be your own person. How could you ever work for someone else? You know, and it's the only path to success. It's not at all, at all. Like I envy many times my team members that work really hard, they make great money and they do other things in life, you know, but I I look back and go, I got a role to play and I love what I'm doing. And I'm glad you love what you're doing too, because that, that partnership makes it work. Well, I definitely wanted to 
let you finish that thought because that was, that was probably mm-hmm. going to be a clip. That was brilliant. I was just, I, and I mean that because I love the way that you positioned that. It was so mm-hmm. cohesive and, and it was important to stress. A couple things I want to comment on that is um, the, the influencer le- level folks here. And there's some really successful people that are also quote unquote Instagram influencers. Mm-hmm. But what all these influencers end up doing is showing you the way that they did it mm-hmm. for themselves and they're positioning their life and their choices as if it was aspirational for you to do the exact same thing. Mm-hmm. And maybe you can replicate it to a degree, but they're showing you how they did it. Like you're stressing, that doesn't necessarily mean it transfers to Ben or transfers to Spencer, but they're selling you on this aspiration to get you to pay for association with them or their courses or their masterminds mm-hmm. and things like that. But you're never going to exactly replicate what that person did. And so there's limitations on what they can show you because that was was their path, not mm-hmm. yours. And I think people sometimes, unfortunately, get caught up on that. Right? Totally. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Living somebody else's life. Yeah. Right? And thinking, oh, well, that's if I just did that, that then I would be happy. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, but I also had the experience. I grew up in a house where my father was running with my mom, a construction company out of the house. So I also got to see, oh, there's it's never turned off. It's yeah. never off on Saturday. It's never off on Sunday. And so I think that shaped me a little bit about it being almost a reticent entrepreneur, mm-hmm. like a little bit more entrepreneurial within Oregon organizations, but a little more cautious than like my father was because I also saw some of the downsides, the amount of work, the stress. I mean, he had health related issues because of the stress, right? So there's, there's a flip side to the coin. And if you're only positioning the aspirational component, you're ignoring the fact that it's hard work and it takes a lot away from you as well. So I appreciate you giving both sides. Well, let me, let me, this is a great segue and put a plug in for, uh, for my show that I'm starting the untrapped entrepreneur. Well, that's where I was going to go. So, so so yeah, so this, I mean, it, it is, and it's perfectly, it's perfectly natural to start a business and want to have freedom and want to do your own thing and then get trapped, hmm. you know, and then maybe similar to your, your father, so many entrepreneurs and myself early on was, um, you get exactly the opposite. You don't get, you don't get the freedom. You get more work. And then sometimes you lose money cause you got to pay everybody else first and there's nothing left for you. And so I'm really passionate in starting this new project, The Untrapped Entrepreneur, is taking people as early on as possible in their entrepreneurial journey, or wherever, if they've been doing it 30 years and they still haven't figured it out, by all means, I wanna help them out. Mm -hmm. But I wanna catch people as early as possible, where if you've taken the risk, the financial risk, the time risk, the relationship risk, you're risking, in many cases, everything, do you actually get what you want out of it? And going back to the team members, part of making it work is you see that person there that is supposed to be your number two, let them do their work, put more work on them. They're your number two. They're great. They're an A player, right? Yes. Well, A players, they want to perform. Mm -hmm. They want to work. They want the challenge. Look at the A players in professional sports. They're not not wanting to practice. They're going, coach, your job is to push me hard, Mm -hmm. challenge me, make me better. And so If you have A players in your organization, what I see most often is you get trapped because you don't give people the work and the opportunity Mm. to grow. And it also, it's a benefit to you. It takes work off of you. It allows you to go on vacation, right? They're thanking you for work. Thank you so much for giving me this project, letting me run the company. And so the show is about unlocking some of those things that cause you to, to spend more time with your family, get more of what you want out of life beyond just the financial rewards of running a business. Well, so it is called Untrapped, right? Is the name of the show. So tell me where we are in the life cycle of this build. I think we're almost perhaps announcing a precursor to it actually launching. Yes. Yes. So untrapped.com or untrappedentrepreneur.com go to the same place. Okay. Um, So that's where all the episodes are. Um, you know, it's a, a new project for us, but I'll be shooting uh, pretty frequently. So I think cool. we'll probably be on a weekly uh, cadence. And um, I'm going to be interviewing people that have got, you know, figured out a little hack. Hey, this is how I untrapped myself. I was over, I was 80 hours a week in my business and I hated life and I was about to get a divorce. And then I figured this thing out. So mm. it's not interviewing perfect people because the, here's the reality <laughs> I've realized once we untrap ourselves, we get comfortable and then we enter another trap. So we're like, okay, I figured this out. Whoo, I can finally take a vacation. But then Spencer calls and goes, Ben, man, I've got the best business opportunity ever. And you go, okay, man, tell me about it. And then I jump into something new because I'm an entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. I'm a guy that gets into trouble that way. Mm-hmm. And so it's not like you figure it out once and you're done. It's a constant learning process okay. to go, uh-oh, you know what? 
uh, instead, if Spencer calls me about that next great business opportunity, I'm going to ask a question and go, that's cool, man. Um, do we have someone to run the company? Mm-hmm. Right. And cause I'm not going to get, yeah, I'm not going to do it. it. Yeah, I have boundaries yeah, here. Yeah, right. Yeah. Do we have uh, investors? Mm-hmm. Right. So it's like, okay, we're going to let's f- hire inv- or find investors to hire someone to run the company. And then I'm going to take an advisory role because I want to, I'm interested in it, but dude, I'm not going through that grind again. Like I did at Jen's place. Okay. Right. Because I don't want to get trapped again. I've, I've, I've learned my lesson. Yeah. Um, so I think it's going to be a place that people can go back to over and over again because we're going to continually fall in those traps. Well, that's, that's really cool, man. And I love, I love the concept. I imagine outside of the podcast, so you're probably building kind of a network of people around it. I mean, I sure you have a vision of how it might evolve over the course of time, but it's starting with the podcast, Mm -hmm. right? Um, Can you share any other details about it? I know, again, we're going to be talking in the future when this comes out. So it might be eight to 10 weeks and we'll try to coincide. So it is actually live Mm -hmm. uh, once it happens, but what else is happening behind the scenes that you can share? I mean, I really look at this as, my personal brand. Um, You know, so when people think about, you know, the untrapped entrepreneur, they think about me and me adding value in their life. And so ultimately, I would like to get to a point where I can serve entrepreneurs in a way through a coaching program, through courses, but Mm -hmm. a more formal way um, to bring them through a process and teach them everything that I've learned and that I'm still learning and then bring on these amazing guests uh, because there are people who have done many more things than I have or untrap themselves even better than I have. So I'm a student on the show, right? As much as I am a teacher, uh, potentially in a course or a coaching program. Well, it sounds amazing, man. And I obviously encourage anybody to take advantage of this medium uh, for whatever their niche is or whatever their area of expertise is. It's been it's been such a fun ride for me to see how this thing's evolves. Mm. And I'm sure you're going to develop the bug for it and the mm. passion for it. Yeah. And it's going to you're going to fixate on it a lot and yeah. growth and all those things. I mean, all the things that come with hopefully you don't get yourself trapped into That's the right. podcast <laughs> world. But so let's do this, Ben. I know you got to get out of here yeah. and we've got to get out of the studio as well. But when we talk kind of future looking uh, big picture stuff. I would love for you to speak to that 18 year old, that 20 year old uh, burgeoning entrepreneur or wannabe entrepreneur. Give me kind of a call to action, some advice that you learned, what you would want to share with them to encourage them perhaps to take this leap of faith. Yeah. I'll I'll go to a story early on, 25 years old, started the gents place. I'm like three months in on the business. I go over to True Fire, which is a restaurant Mm -hmm. there in the shopping center. And uh, it's one o'clock in the afternoon and um, I, I order a beer. And I'm drinking a beer at one o'clock in the afternoon, like a Tuesday. And the owner of True Fire comes over. Now they owned barbershops too at the time. They owned all the Floyd's barbershops ah. in town. So they're like, hey man, uh, business must be good. And I'm like, oh yeah, man, it's great. I'm three months in on my business, right? Like not too many things can be great. Um, I'm losing money. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea how to run the business, but I'm popping open a beer, working on my laptop. And uh, he goes, hey, uh, let me know if you ever need any advice. I was like, oh, yeah, for sure, man. Definitely. I'll, you know, I'll let you know. And I didn't take their advice. I never met with them. And then I realized a year in, two years in, three years in, I'm like, oh, my God, this is hard. Mm. This is really hard. Had like all, entire staff almost walk out on me. I'm losing money at times. I'm priced wrong. Like it was craziness. So I would say if you're 18 years old, like when that guy taps you on the shoulder and says, let me know if you ever need any advice, he might be telling you, you really need advice, but you need to figure this out on your own. Because I know if I tell you, let me give you some advice, you're not going to hear it, right? So if you get that tap, take it, go, hey, I think I know everything, but could you tell me what you think I don't know? Mm Mm-hmm. Um, I wish I would have done that. It would have saved me. Those guys built their business and sold it. They're franchisees. Built their business, sold it. And so I do now, I train myself where if somebody says, let me know if you need something, I'm like, let's meet. Yeah. That means you you want to tell me something, but maybe maybe you feel like you're below me and you in how could you possibly teach me? I may not be receptive. Maybe I'm coming off as a guy that knows everything and you know, I don't want to tell him what to do, but I see a gap. Hmm. And so I just, I'm trying to like feed it out there. Like take the bait, right? take the advice. Well, I like you saying that, man, because I I do think even though entrepreneurs like yourself are going to be very competitive, you want to win, you want to build, you want to grow. I do also think there's, there's a soft spot. I think entrepreneurs have for other entrepreneurs, Mm -hmm. a willingness to help, right? To extend a hand and, oh, by the way, I screwed this up and it took me eight years to figure this out. Let me share with you this one thing that I think will shorten your learning curve, because it's not like they want to see you fail. 
they're they probably appreciate the fact that you've taken this step out and bet on yourself. Yeah. Right? So they're just it is there as a uh, lending hand. Right? Yes. Yeah. And I've tried to be a good a, a better receiver. I've never been a good receiver of things. You You're know, preaching to the choir. Yeah. Right? It's like yeah. military family, yeah. and you know we don't we we give and we serve and and everything. But that's why you know when we were chatting the other day, like it takes a lot for me to go. Dude, you are doing it. Like you're running this podcast. Like I can learn from you. Just me verbalizing, I can learn from you and telling that to a 20-year-old, 22-year-old, a 25-year-old, a 40-year-old, like just me saying that took that was a lot of growth for me to go, I can learn from you. Can you mm. can you show me some things? Can you teach me? That's totally out of my comfort zone normally, but I've gotten used to doing that and people just open up and go Man, I don't, I don't know if I can teach you anything. You're you're a really great entrepreneur. I'm like, yeah, but I don't know about that. Mm -hmm. I don't know about podcasting. Mm -hmm. I may be working with, and I told you I'm working with this amazing producer who's produced one of the most successful podcasts ever. Yeah, but Spencer knows more than I know about podcasting, and I need Good. to I need to ask him. Yeah, right. Well, and I you know it's funny too, and I will be happy to share everything I've learned. But you know, two years in, I can tell you. Yeah, coming up on the hundredth episode soon. It's it's uh, still you feel like man, I've just scratched the surface, right? Yeah. So like, I I bet very in very short order you'll be teaching me some things, especially from that producer. So mm -hmm. why don't we do this, Ben? I know we've probably been talking what what eight hour ten. Yeah. Ah, got got a good internal yeah. clock. Uh, <laughs> but I really appreciate you you joining me, man. You even just responded to a cold outreach, which I yeah. think maybe there's a lesson in that, right? If you sure. can position it well, and there's a reason to reach out to somebody and make the ask, that you might be surprised that people will say yes. So Ben, Absolutely. it's been a pleasure. Hopefully this is just get, uh, the start of getting to know you, man. But kudos to your success. Yeah, thanks for having me, brother. You My too. My pleasure.